I think a materialist approach to things is very, very consistent with uh, my experience in Christian social justice. I feel like the, the deeper I get into anarchist practice, the deeper my faith is getting at the same time. I would hope that you know, securing means of life for all would be something all people of faith would say, oh yes, that's at the basis of what we believe. Those who are most marginalized know the most about the truth, good and the beautiful. To me, it's less that I think building class solidarity is a bad thing, as much as it seems like if you don't attend to things like anti-black racism, um, that's always going to get in the way of building class solidarity, actually. And when you go back, you find that a lot of uh, revolutionary grassroots participatory movements, the, the precursors to what you could call um, the barrio assemblies and these like, you know, grassroots neighborhood organizations, a lot of these were sponsored by the church. What does it mean to say that the Christian tradition is internally contradictory and there are antagonisms there? Um, you're always uh, being faithful to some aspects and betraying other aspects. Welcome to the Magnificast, the podcast about Christianity and leftist politics. I'm your co-host, Dean Delaf. And I'm your other co-host, Matt Bernico. Uh, let's see, Matt, it's been a while. We took a week off, kind of. Um, you're still adjusting to one of those big British Isles. Um, is it a British Isle or is it, a, is it something else? Well, I mean, the whole thing's an island if you think about it. Right. It's an isle that is part of Britain. Anyway, it's a, big, uh, a big isle for sure. <laughs> it's a big isle. It's beguiling. And how is it going over there in uh, in Scotland? Um, it's going great. We're just living our lives, riding the train around. My son's starting school and he has to wear a big, <laughs> a big fancy uniform. And he's not thrilled <laughs> about it. But uh <laughs> We're going to make it through this first week if it kills us. In solidarity, I think you should have a podcasting uniform. Oh, that's a great point. Yeah, usually I'm only just wearing like, you know, sleepy time clothes. But maybe I should be <laughs> bring, bringing real tie energy to this uh, this podcast. That would be a great idea. Yeah, you got to get an overcoat. Uh, you can sew all your punk patches onto it. It can be a, a whole unique vibe. That's true. Maybe I should get him psyched up about wearing a uniform by also wearing a uniform myself. A dad uniform for his first day of school to drop him off. That's right. Um, and coincidentally, I just got back from the United States. So you went out, I went in. The U.S. can only abide not having a Magnificast <laughs> host there for so long. Uh, but now I'm back from Michigan, the Mitten State. I did a big river float, and uh, and I made it back alive, just barely, to Canada. Um, great to hear that you made it back to Canada, that you didn't get trapped in the United States. What was your most American experience when you were there? I'm kind of like, oh. you know, like living vicariously through you just to feel to feel the freedom again, you know? Right. Well, it was actually my first visit to Joe Biden's America, which is pretty crazy. And my most American experience was going to Taco Bell, which has apparently since the coronavirus really gone into the future. I had to order on a big giant iPad. There were 30 other vegetarian things I could get that weren't just like refried beans on a tortilla. That was pretty exciting. And uh, yeah, I was I was shocked, um, shocked by how much I could get. Also shocked by how easy it is to spend twenty dollars at a Taco Bell. Couldn't believe that. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it's out of control. Thanks, Joe Biden. Inflation. It's here. Yeah. You left during Barack Obama's America. You skipped Trump's America. And now you're back to Joe (laughs) Biden's America. Man, that's great. I I did come during Trump's America, but I had never been there during Biden's. That's true. Yeah. You came to visit me that one time or a few times. 
Twice? Man, couldn't remember. Yeah. Memorable, but I couldn't remember which one was which. <laughs> well, folks, yeah. here we are. We're outside of the United States uh, again, and that's great. Uh, hopefully, all of you inside the United States, you're doing just fine in Joe Biden's America, surviving whatever's happening. It seems like the weather's bad. Uh, good luck out there. Uh, but this week, <laughs> we're not chatting about any of that. What we are going to chat about is Sergio Arce and his book, The Church and Socialism. Arce is a really interesting character within liberation theology. He's kind of a critic of liberation theology, but definitely like within that orbit, I think of uh, of vibe, the vibe orbit of liberation theology. Uh, <laughs> but he's he's different for a few reasons, uh, mainly because he's Presbyterian and not Catholic. So finally, um, <laughs> all of us Protestants, we get we get to put one up on the board for ourselves, and that feels really great. <laughs> finally, a good one. Um, there's some very interesting things about the Presbyterian Church in Cuba that I'm just now learning as right before we, we uh, record this episode, and I'll tell you all about it a little bit later on. But it's very fun. So he's Presbyterian, and that's cool. But also the big the other big difference is that he's doing theology from within a socialist country rather than as a form of like you know prophetic critique against a capitalist country or against you know the imperialism of the United States or whatever. So there's a very different vibe to what he's doing, and I think it's really interesting. Um, liberation theology is always telling you, you know, uh, how bad things are and kind of giving you this really interesting theological critique of capitalism. And you get that in our say as well, but you also get, like, um, what what the church could look like in a socialist country. And that is, like, a, a an interesting piece of the puzzle that I think we don't get to talk about very much because... I don't know, a lot of reasons. We've done it in the past, but this is another great example of uh, that kind of genre of liberation theology. Um, the book itself is very cool uh, because it's um, imagining, you know, that next step of liberation theology. What does the church look like after <laughs> after liberation <laughs> happens? <laughs> um, the other cool part of the book, too, is that Dorothy Zuela wrote the introduction of the book. Um, you'll remember Dorothy Zuela is uh, like a German and uh, a German Christian who uh, comes to America and she writes this uh writes poetry, writes lots of interesting anti-war stuff. But I think you'll know her on this podcast, particularly because she um, kind of coins the phrase Christofascism and, and, I mean, comes out hard against it, obviously. So Dorothy Zuela is in conversation with Sergio Arce, and uh, she has an introduction to the book that I think is really cool. Um, she puts the main thrust of the book like this, which I think is an oversimplification, uh, but that's fine. It's an introduction to a book, and that's just how it goes. So... Um, <laughs> Zuela writes, what is communism and what does it mean to live as a Christian under communist rule? Sergio Arce turns this question upside down and asks his first world readers how they possibly could live out their faith and Christian commitment to love their neighbor in a capitalist country. A great turn. Very fun. Um, Dorothy Zuela uh, is, is like puts it all in a good way. And I think that you see a lot of those themes come out kind of over and over again in Arce's book. Um, but we'll get to the book in a minute. Uh, but first... Here's a, a bit about Sergio Arce. Dean, do you want to talk about his biography a bit? Sure. Yep. He is uh, born in Cuba in 1924. Pretty interesting uh, time to be in Cuba, uh, an incredibly poor country and one that at that time was especially under the thumb of the United States and kind of was treated as like the recreational plaything of uh, U.S. Americans. He went to study in Puerto Rico and eventually he taught at the Presbyterian Seminary in New Jersey. Um, and uh, he had a, a, a lot of pretty interesting circuitous educational paths. <laughs> but he returned to Cuba in 1961. He got a Ph.D. from the University of Havana. 
He went on to teach theology at the Seminary of Theology in Matanzas, which is still around today and still um, a pretty fascinating uh, place for kind of producing revolutionary theology on the island um, still now. He was a the uh, general secretary of the Presbyterian Reformed Church in Cuba from 1966 to 1985, pretty long time, and a member of the drafting commission of the Confession of Faith of the Presbyterian Reformed Church in Cuba proclaimed in 1977, which, uh, Matt, as a person who's gone to a Presbyterian church a handful of times, I guess you're going to have to uh, help me figure out what's so great about it or how it works, but uh, an interesting, yeah. important kind of formative role. Um, I think uh, what's cool about Arce is that he's a theologian writing theology, like lots of theologians do, but he's also like an incredibly practical guy. Like, he's the the rector at this seminary, so he's thinking about theological education. He's the secretary of the, the Presbyterian Reformed Church in Cuba. So he's doing all kinds of ecclesial politics and, you know, thinking through what it means to be Presbyterian in a country like Cuba. So he's a real practical kind of angle. And I often, whenever I think of Sergio Arce, I also think of Cage Ting in China, um, a kind of similar analogous figure, uh, a Christian who's part of a denominational apparatus of some kind and also trying to discern how to be a Christian in a socialist country and sort of uh, affirming the socialist path, but also figuring out what does that look like for a Christian specifically. Uh, Matt, um, again, as a person who's been to a Presbyterian church, uh, what uh, what else do you want to add here about Sergio Arce? No, I think that's great. I've gone to a Presbyterian church, uh, the Church of Scotland, now a handful of times, and that's been fun, and I like it, and I'll probably keep going there. I don't know. It's so close to my house. How could I not, right? It's very convenient. <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, one of these great contingencies that Arce likes to talk about, and we'll get there in a minute, I guess. Um, I don't know if there's anything that you really need to know about Presbyterianism before we kind of head into this, um, but there is kind of this interesting emphasis in Presbyterian churches about democracy, and that's kind of cool, um, and maybe some of that comes through. I think the most interesting pieces of the um, the Confession of Faith of the Presbyterian Church in Cuba um, aren't really to do with Presbyterianism. It's mostly to do with Marxism Leninism. <laughs> that's what makes it cool. <laughs> but anyways... Um, that's the treat at the end of this episode is uh, if you listen to us talk about theology for the first like 30 minutes, uh, you'll get an interesting, some interesting pieces of the confession of faith of the Presbyterian Reformed Church in Cuba about Marxism and Leninism at the very end. So uh, that's the, the cherry on top of this, of this weird Sunday that you're eating. <laughs> what a great reward. Uh, we should also mention something about the book. Um, so the book is great. It collects a bunch of chapters. We're only going to talk about a couple of them and maybe Dorothy Zoela's introduction there's a ton of other stuff to read in it. For example, there's a really cool chapter about like what should the church even do in a social society? Um, lots of interesting reflections on all that kind of stuff. Uh, it was also published by this really wild publishing house, um, if you could call it that, called the New York Circus, which was attached to a kind of um, Christians for Socialism, Chilean exile, uh, lefty, progressive, Christian, whatever <laughs> community in New York. Um, they they had a, a relationship to the Christians for Socialism movement in the United States. They published a bunch of other stuff, a lot of liberation theology stuff. I guess like whatever didn't get published by Orbis, <laughs> it seems to me, was getting published yeah. by uh, by the New York Circus, which is also very unfortunately named it's really hard to uh, to google but um it's one of those interesting like lost institutions of leftist christianity i guess if you're 
if you're out there and you want to do a PhD on something incredibly niche, um, connecting all these dots between like left Christian movements and publishing and all that kind of stuff in like the 60s to the 80s, like there's got to be a great history written about that one day. But uh, it's a, a great book and it's on archive.org. So you can read it there for free for now. Okay, great. We've done it. We've we've set the proverbial table, and now let's get in to the big ice cream cone that is this episode. So <laughs> uh, we're going to start off talking about the intro that Dorothy's Zuela writes, and I think it's interesting, um, and she kind of sets up what the book is about by and large. Um, the book is just like a collection of these essays, and there's not, I mean, there's a lot that connects them, honestly. But there's not like a thematic flow, so I think that what Zuela gives you at the very beginning is just like a helpful overview. So at the very beginning, she's starting, she starts off talking about anti-communism and how it's ruined the brains of Americans. And I think that's a very good place to start. And that's like kind of why this particular book is important. It's a, you know, it's a book that's written by this, this like uh, Cuban theologian, I would say, and he's writing it for people in North America to read. Basically, uh, Dorothy's Zuela says, it's kind of like, you know, it's like building a bridge between these two, these two different places. And, uh, you know, uh, the United States government wants to tear that bridge down, but uh, here we go. Sergio Arce, he's building it up. Um, so it's cool. I think it's really interesting. There's a lot of different pieces I think are worth pulling out. But the one that I really do, uh, the first one I want to pull out at least is, is this quote here from, um, this is a, a quote from Dorothy Zuela, and she's quoting Arce in a few places, and I'll just read it. So she says, what Sergio Arce critically states about the church in his country is true as well for other churches. This is a quote from Arce. The church thinks only of itself and defending its institutional integrity its exemptions, its privileges, its so-called rights, as if the church had any rights to the world. Then this is Zuela again. In many countries, the church has been very rich in terms of buildings and land, in terms of tax exemptions and other privileges, in terms of social status. The misalliance between the church and state power had been seen as a natural privilege since the Constantinian age of Christianity. Now we live in a time where this misalliance breaks down. Many Christians call this breakdown persecution where in reality, it's the reduction of an overprivileged group to the normality. The Constantinianized church gets the chance to become re-Christianized. Um, so this piece at the beginning here is great, and it's an important kind of part of the puzzle because, you know, during this particular time period, I mean, you know, it's still even, you know, people are always really suspicious of the church in socialist contexts. Um, you know, I mean, whether it's China or Cuba, right, it's like... Um, these socialist countries degrade the right of religion in X, Y, and Z ways. Um, but this is sort of a recontextualization of what it means to be a church, I think, period, in terms of uh, how it relates to the state. And I think it's an interesting reframing, right? Um, it's it's uh, not necessarily the persecution of Christian churches, though that's how Christians feel because they're sort of getting downgraded to normality. <laughs> you know, it's just, um, it's not that. It's being treated like any other institution, um, and not put above them. So anyways, that's a um, an interesting note that she starts on to kind of contextualize how the church and state sort of relate uh, with regards to Cuba and that she thinks it's good. And uh, I don't know, an interesting, uh, interesting place to start the conversation. Yeah, it echoes what she says elsewhere about the church in um in East Germany, in the German Democratic Republic as well. She wrote a pretty interesting essay. I think we talked about literally years ago on this podcast, uh, in the monthly review, where she talks about Christian Marxist dialogue in Europe. 
And she says essentially the same thing there, that uh, the church has been disciplined by the state for sure. It's lost a bunch of its institutions and its role in society, etc. And she admits, too, that that can be like a really painful process. And, uh, you know, I think that like there's probably room in Zoila to sort of say that maybe not all the way that that happens is necessarily a good thing. But yeah. it does kind of create a, uh, a, a ground, I guess, in which the church is able to basically re-encounter what it's supposed to be doing. It can't really take for granted that it's like an institution of moral authority. It has to earn that right in a way that it doesn't have to when, you know, everybody is a Christian or everybody thinks Christianity is fine and good, etc. And I think there is something to that that's pretty interesting. She mentions, Sue here that um, Americans or U.S. Americans have a specifically weird time with anti-communism. Um, she uh, plays that up a lot. And as a person from Germany who spent a lot of time in the GDR, she tells some pretty funny stories about like talking about Christianity in Germany and someone being like, that can't be right because there's no Christians in communist Germany. And she's like, well, I have friends who are pastors there and like, this is what they think. <laughs> you know. And I think uh, that's something that Dorothy Zoela is also sort of pointing out with Arce that these preconceptions that people have about communism and Christianity, they just lose sight of or lose track of the fact that there are Christians in those countries and they are thinking in pretty complicated ways about what that economic arrangement, political arrangement means for them, both maybe good and bad. And uh, I think it's a it's a nice way to um, to contextualize our say to say like we have to be able to get over a kind of anti-communist bias in order to entertain the possibility that maybe a Christian in a communist country <laughs> doesn't feel like they don't exist, <laughs> right? Or, or doesn't yeah. feel like their faith is made up, or maybe there's a kind of authenticity to it that we need to kind of make room for. Or even that, like, you know, you have to go, you have to get over the anti-communism of even feeling that, like, you know, making the church a regular institution like any other institution could be like maybe even a good thing you know that it's like a sort of a different arrangement that americans have a hard time i, I think parsing out because of the way that the church is extremely central to the story of the united states um but this is a, a different kind of telling and you have to get over that hump before you can even start considering like that there are christians there yeah exactly i think that's the the big piece is just trying to attend to the reality <laughs> of christians in a country like that uh, she goes on to say, um, listening to Sergio Arce's voice, I'm made aware again of the shifts in the life of a church in a social society. There are things taken away from the church, class bondage, privileges, and power, and there are things given at, to Christians as new chances and challenges. The church may have the chance to be more incarnate and worldly than before. I find traces of a new ecclesiology in Arce's book. The serious threat to the church is docetic heresy, she says, quoting Arce. When Christians become incarnate in their own society, they no longer serve the interests of the minority of the rich, but begin to be servants to the majority of the people. Therefore, the sugar harvest in Cuba has to be taken seriously by Christians. Economy, production, and distribution plans are part of the Christian enterprise, and the Christians become Christians through getting involved in the revolutionary practice. And again, that's something that you see in K.H. Ting's stuff uh, in China, this kind of attempt to not necessarily say like, what Christians are doing and what Marxists are doing are exactly the same. Although, you know, there's maybe some more overlap than you'd think. Uh, but to say that uh, Christians should act in a social society the same way they should act in, in any other, which is to say, you know, I don't know, 
commit yourself to the the communal project that is pushing social justice forward. And in a country like Cuba, that means uh, doing a good job getting a bunch of sugar. <laughs> you know, just like trying to think really carefully about uh, what those reforms actually mean for the people of Cuba in an honest way. And I think that, you know, Sergio Arce does that in a really impressive way as well. Like he tries to parse out what is it about Cuba specifically that is offering him as a Presbyterian Christian a new way to express his Christianity through love for his neighbors, um, through hope and faith, as we'll talk about in a minute in a really interesting essay that he writes. So uh, I like that Zoela is really calling attention to the way that Arce is, you know, uh, thinking really carefully about the revolutionary situation and its consequences for Christianity. Yeah. One addition to that that I think is actually really interesting is the emphasis that Arce puts on work in his I mean in his theology but also even in the like where the rubber meets the road in the confession of faith of the Presbyterian Church in Cuba there's a whole section about um work and how Christians are called to a particular type of work um and it's interesting because it's like work is work is important for Christians for a few different reasons but mainly because um like people in general human beings as they exist in the world are communal beings and work is a type of like expression of love in that communal setting where you're like working towards something that's good for everybody, like the sugar harvest in Cuba um, or some type of other economic production um, or, you know, whatever it is that you're doing work is like an important part of the whole. Um, But what's interesting though, in, in the way that it's fleshed out in like in the Presbyterian church in Cuba is that um, it's not work in the sense of like dominion and that you have like an, an annoying boss or something it's um he says it's like it's work um it's it's a type of work that you do but like you don't have a boss you have jesus who is like your brother like you have like that kind of coworker, right so it's a different uh a different framing um but it's interesting because like it's um it it's really um it's focusing on doing things right it's participating in the revolution it's participating in cuban society it's doing the work it's like doing these things it's not necessarily about like believing x y and z thing or saying a particular type of prayer or whatever it's there's no it's not there's no pie in the sky it's all pie on the counter (laughs) it's all pie on the counter uh zoela ends her chapter also with uh some questions that she wants to pose to uh to arce that could be kind of productive points of tension and i think that's important to note just because uh yeah, she's not like offering this as a kind of uncritical look um and i think arce is also not expecting like an uncritical uh reception either. Um, there's lots of room for a dialogue. She's mainly concerned about Arce's emphasis on rationality, which she is, is, I think, really interesting. She talks about, like, the feminist critique of science being the the ultimate, you know, rhetoric, and that's really fascinating, given that Arce is trying really hard to negotiate living in a, a Marxist society, and is trying to sort out maybe a, another angle of critique on some of that rhetoric, which is pretty interesting. Um, but she also has a an interesting line about Arce's critique of liberation theology, which we can talk about maybe toward the end. Um, he does have a critique that I think is like also not fully founded. Um, I think Zoela's got him on that one, uh, but also makes it an interesting point. All that to say, though, um, Dorothy Zoela, it's a, a really nice introduction just to be like, here's what Arce is doing. And also here's maybe some interesting uh, points where Arce, too, is going to have to like continue to dialogue in a in an exchange with christians outside of cuba dorothy's will is right these are some uh productive points of tension i love <laughs> it it's great um okay so that's that's dorothy's whale's introduction it's cool 
the first chapter of the book that we read is called Why Am I a Christian? And it is very interesting. I actually like it a lot. Um, when people ask you, okay, so when you go to like an evangelical university, people ask you this question and you are forced to think of a really profound answer <laughs> on the spot. Because if you just say, I'm a Christian because my parents took me to church or something or because, you know, whatever, because <laughs> I don't know any better because <laughs> it's just the life that I've been given. People will think that you're a giant idiot. Um, but what Arce does is something different. He says, um, I'm a Christian because my parents are Christians. <laughs> Basically, that's the argument, at least one of them that happens in this chapter. And I do like it. Um We'll get to maybe that more in a minute, but he starts off this section saying, in my case, being a Christian relates to the path. That is, experiences that I've had throughout my life, the immediate reality that confronts me each morning when I go out on the street, the real material life that I'm living here and now. This framing of the path as uh, why I'm a Christian, I think, is important, right? Um, in some stories like that you'll hear about theologians, like, oh, like John Wesley, for example. This is always a good example that I always think about, Right. John Wesley has a story about becoming a Christian where his heart was strangely warmed, right? And he was a Christian all of a sudden. And you hear this in evangelical churches all the time where people, they pray the sinner's prayer and their whole life changes. Uh, but for I say it's different. There's a path. It's not just like one thing that happened to him that made him a Christian, but it's this whole sort of life that's laid out before him. And the first part of that life, I think, I mean, makes sense, is about his parents. Um, and... Uh, there, there are three parts, right? There's, uh, he's, he's a Christian because of his, of his parents, his family. He's a Christian because he's encountered, uh, Christ in the face of the poor. And then he's a Christian because he's a revolutionary. These are the three of them. And what's interesting is, uh, we'll talk through them all in a minute, but what's interesting is that each of these is a type of what he calls imposed necessity that he didn't necessarily choose. Um, so he, he says, um, my gospel resembles that of Paul, and as in his case, announcing it, which is to say believing it, is a matter of necessity, which has been imposed on me. Um, and then he says, here, I am a Christian out of an imposed necessity. I didn't choose to be a Christian, but why then am I a Christian? I like it because it's like actually pretty materialist to think this way, that you're not a Christian because um, of some profound reason, because you prayed the sinner's prayer just right and asked Jesus into your heart. But you're a Christian for all these other kind of like interesting impositions that have been pushed on to you. And, you know, there's a there's one way to look at that where it's like, well, this is actually like too sociological and it kind of takes the spiritual aspect out of it or something. But I think on the other hand, I think it's it's fine just to recognize that God does these things too. Why not? I don't know. <laughs> it's interesting. Um, Dean, do you want to get into the parents part? Yeah, I do. Of course, uh, I, I want to add to one thing that he says right before the quote you just read. He says, I would simply say that being a Christian has been my most serious and difficult problem. And uh, boy, can I relate. <laughs> um, <laughs> Me too. So, yeah, uh, here is a very funny story that I'll just read and then we can talk it through uh, on the, the parents issue. Arce says, not long ago, a North American journalist of the sort who, because they are journalists and North Americans, do nothing but distort the truth and confuse issues, <laughs> uh, interviewed me for a Christian magazine in the United States. By the way, I couldn't find it right away, but I do want to find it, and I have a few guesses. One of his questions was very similar to what concerns us here. Why are you still a Christian in communist Cuba? I had talked to him about the path taken by Cuba since the victory of the revolution, the Cuban reality, illustrated by facts and data, etc., etc., uh, in the light of these truths, I had told the journalist that in Cuba of today, it's more meaningful to be a Marxist than to be a Christian. 
in view of the contribution that the Marxists are making to the development of the Cuban people as a whole, a contribution 100 times more important than the Christians accomplished in the entire history of our country, and a thousand times more significant than the contribution that we Christians are making now. Uh, you have to imagine that must have been an extremely funny thing to say to like a Christianity Today journalist. It was then that yep. the journalist asked me the question I'm discussing here, why are you still a Christian? I began my answer uh, in more or less the same terms used in this chapter. I said, I'm a Christian because my parents were Christians. He did not understand my reply. What he asked, do you mean that there's no personal conviction in you yourself about your Christian faith? In response to this question, I explained to him that I was a Christian because, basically and fundamentally, I'd been born a Christian. The journalist still failed to understand that no antecedent personal conviction was necessary to make my thinking continue to be Christian within the framework of Marxist thinking. He did not understand that the Christianity I'd received from my parents was not the same as what he had received. His was a Christianity of the establishment, an added measure that had been appended to his life as a citizen of a nation which considers itself a chosen people of God and a Christian people. His Christianity was the religion of empire. Uh, so Arce goes on to like talk a lot more about his own kind of childhood and like what that was like and kind of his parents were really committed to being Presbyterians. They had even been, uh, or his grandparents, I guess, had been like kicked out of Spain and had gone around uh, a few places before landing in, in Cuba. So, you know, it's like a pretty firm part of his household growing up and so on. He talks to you about the Christianity of his family being pretty engaged with the people, even engaged in community work and all that kind of stuff. But I love that the the key here is not even the, the bio, biographical like details, but really to kind of mark out a difference that both Arce and this journalist are frankly Christians because their parents were Christians, right? That's the contingency mm -hmm. that he's naming. Um, but the kind of Christianity that uh, you might grow up with in the United States doesn't prepare you to maybe have the same uh, reaction to the Cuban revolution that the kind of Christianity Arce grew up with. And I think uh, naming that kind of contingency is really healthy. Um, it's like a profoundly anti-evangelical move, right? Like your Christianity isn't contingent on saying the prayer correctly or getting it all right or passing the test or telling a, a great uh, story of testimony or something. It's just about kind of acknowledging the the contingency of life that you have and then taking it on board in an intentional way. And in a roundabout way, I think Arce is sort of getting at something we talk about a lot in the podcast, which is that Christianity is sort of a thing that most of us are thrown into, whether we like it or not. And if you decide that you want to like it, you kind of have to just like name that that's the that's the origin <laughs> for better and for worse. And then and then deal with that. Um, I think it's really interesting mm -hmm. to just see that articulated. It's like you know, Marika Rose says it in such a profound and beautiful way in the theology that she writes, and I love it. Um, Sergio Arce is saying it here in an incredibly pastoral way, <laughs> just like being a regular dude, being like, yeah. I don't know, man, being a Christian is weird, and uh, it uh, when you think about it, um, it makes you think about all kinds of other weird stuff that uh, that, have, that has happened in your life. It's like one thing among many other things. Yeah, for sure. The uh, th There's also, I mean, there's a there's a piece later on where he's kind of talking about his family in this interesting way too, and in, in their religious expression. And um, well, here, I'll just read a little piece of it and we can move on. He says that uh, he, the journalist could not understand that an entire home can be a temple in which the presence of God is evident at all times. he did not understand that parents could be genuine prophets because to them, faith was not the mere repetition of a creed or dutiful attendance at worship, but basically the constant confrontation of all family life with the gospel of Christ. 
Um, man, it's a uh, it's a good word. Can we we can all hope to only be those kinds of parents? I think in the future, <laughs> it's amazing. Um, <laughs> I'm failing at that every day, but still, <laughs> um, yeah, I don't know. It's wild. It's great. Uh, as a parent, it's uh, something you aspire to, I guess. <laughs> if you're trying to bring your kid to church, right? Uh, church sucks. It's boring. It's uh, hard to bring your kid there when it is boring, but uh, maybe sometimes uh, there's a type of faith that you can teach and live that is, you know, beyond going to a boring church service or something. Yeah. I'd, You'd hope so, at least. You would. <laughs> you would hope so. Um, I think also it's helpful to contextualize this in Arce's biography. So we mentioned he's born in the 20s. The revolution happens in 1959. So he's like a fully formed adult at this point. And I think the 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 idea is like he was a Christian before the revolution. So, of course, he's just going to keep being one afterwards, I guess. You know, like, <laughs> I think it's just like as simple as that, that uh, being a Christian in a revolutionary society, um, maybe it forces you to kind of think differently about your faith or consider other questions that you didn't have to consider in a capital society or vice versa or whatever. But at the end of the day, it's just sort of our say affirming that, you know, he's been a Christian all his life. Why would he like, why would a Marxist revolution sort of prompt him to, I don't know, abandon that or like even ask the question, why am I still a Christian in communist Cuba? Um, and I think that is helpful too, just to be like, you know, this is a person born under, um, <laughs> under oppression even before Batista in Cuba and then living through all the, the civil war and so on. So it's just helpful to keep that history in mind too. Totally. Um, not only is it a silly question to ask why he's still a Christian after the revolution, but it's just, he, he'll even say later on, it's easier to be a Christian there, <laughs> right. which is great. Your church, your church doesn't have to plan like, um, you know, piecemeal charity events when, <laughs> you know, you can just, uh, work for the, the good of all people in society. It's great. Um, okay. So the next piece is that he's a Christian because, uh, he saw the face of Christ in the poor. This is like a, an interesting, I mean, this is like the, the liberation theology point that people often make, but he says this, I'm a Christian because I was born and grew up in a capitalist dependent country in a North American neo-colony in a country that is now misnamed the third world, the underdeveloped world, the world of the poor. I belong by reason of class to the heirs of the kingdom, to those who the gospel calls blessed because the kingdom of God is theirs. Thus, I learned at close hand from childhood onward about the injustices inherent in society that was not only capitalist, but in turn dependent on the most decisive centers of neo-imperialist power in the present-day world. In fact, the entire history of Cuba, like that of the rest of the underdeveloped world, is the history of colonialist and neo-colonialist exploitation. Cuba was dominated first by Spanish imperialism for four centuries, and then by North American neo-imperialism for 60 years. As early as adolescence, the material and spiritual poverty of my people assailed my Christian feelings created in the warmth of my home. So what you get here, though, is, I mean, not not unlike other types of liberation theology, it's, you know, the encounter with with actual suffering with other people in the world in combination with like the type of Christianity that he's learning about um, at home and elsewhere. That's, you know, where he's he's encountering, you know, Christ, he's encountering people, Jesus in, in the um, people who are like him, poor and oppressed, not just by cuba but also um who you know are pressed by the colonialism of the united states um yeah i don't know dean what do you think yeah i mean i think it's uh again just kind of naming that other contingency that just like he didn't choose his parents he didn't choose the uh the country into which he was born and i think that is also a really just fascinating way to reflect on being a christian um 
I will say, uh, I think you're right to point out the the resonance here with other uh, liberation theologians, right? Seeing Christ in the face of the poor, you could kind of imagine basically the same paragraph being written by Leonardo Boff, for example, you know, just switch Cuba for Brazil and Spain for Portugal or something. I don't know, but <laughs> it's uh, definitely a trope there. Um, but maybe this is even a good chance to really briefly kind of do an aside on his critique of liberation theology, which I think is... Um, like I said, not fully fair, but has an interesting point. Um, he talks a little bit in a, a different essay about how liberation theology to him is still too like too heady or too abstract. And it's good at making critiques of capitalism and dependency, but it's not it, it doesn't turn the corner to then create a whole theology that affirms socialism as the answer to that problem. And Arce is like, that's what we actually need, a theology of socialism, which, first of all, is really fascinating, very interesting, and uh, I think uh, an, uh, a good proposal. Yeah, you got to think about how to theologize for the kind of positive revolutionary program. But at the same time, uh, and Dorothy Zoela points this out, too, it's not like liberation theologians aren't doing that, even though they don't live in a socialist society. So if you read Good Theology of Liberation, you see pretty strong and explicit commitments to socialism in that book, for example. Um, Dorothy Zoela mentions the situation in Nicaragua, you know, like are the Sandinistas not doing that <laughs> when they're doing theology or, or what? So I think that there's like some interesting, like he's painting with too wide a brush here. But uh, he does raise an interesting point that it's true on the whole. If you pick up a book by a liberation theologian, you're going to you're going to learn a lot more about capitalism and development and dependency than you are about what it looks like to be a Christian in socialism, which makes sense. They're writing from their contexts and they don't live in social societies, you know, for the most part. Um, so there's something there. And uh, nevertheless, I think that it's a it's an interesting critique of liberation theology. And it's one that you also get again in K.H. Ting. I guess I'm just making all these references because like it's rare that you get a theologian, you know, <laughs> reflecting from a social society on liberation theology. But uh, Ting has a, a similar critique or at least a distinction between like K.H. Ting will say we're not liberation theologians in China because we're living in a post moment of liberation what we have to do instead is think about the construction of our society and how do we do that theologically. So he's like, no shade to the liberation theologians, just not worry about. And uh, I think you get something similar here in Arce. In Arce. Um, all that to say, I mean, liberation theology has a lot to do with Cuba. Fidel was really interested in it. I'm sure Arce probably says more about it elsewhere. But um, all that to say, just an interesting moment to pause to be like, he's affirming a pretty substantial point that liberation theology does that you encounter it in the face of the poor. But uh, yeah, uh, also makes a, an interesting challenge to people who want to be into liberation theology. Um, I could say more about it, but let's let's <laughs> yeah. keep going because we we don't have, we don't have much time, um, too much time to spent talking about Taco <laughs> Bell. Uh, anyways, in the last section of this, why am I Christian? Uh, chapter, he says that he's a Christian because he's a revolutionary. So he says uh, this: How can one be a Christian in a social society? My answer has always been the same. First, we'd have to ask ourselves, how could one be a Christian in a capitalist? How could one be a Christian in a society where love of money, a desire for ostentation, a greed for profit, and a thirst for possession consume the interest, time, and efforts of those who comprise it? To be a Christian in a socialist society is, is a relatively easy matter. The concern, the effort, and the increasing interest of the majority of our fellow citizens, whether they call themselves Christians or not, are devoted to contributing as effectively as possible to the material and spiritual welfare of everyone. 
How can it be difficult to be a Christian in a country where the self-respect and dignity of all citizens has become the religion of the Cubans? Um, this is cool, though. I think it's really interesting because, um, okay, well, this is what it made me think of, I guess. In uh, college, I went to visit a monastery once. It was like a Benedictine monastery. It was cool. It's like one of those trips that you do as an evangelical college student. And you see, you know, I don't know, people who are really serious about their religious life. So much so that they give up everything and go live a bun- with a bunch of other guys. And uh, on that trip and the monastery, you know, people are like, why do you live like this? You know, it's basically the question that we all want to know. Like, why would you, you know, give up being married or having a job or uh, playing (laughs) PlayStation, you know, to pray 15 times a day and to, you know, eat in the same fart smelling room with other guys? And, um, you know, what they tell us, though, is is that it. It's like it's Christianity on easy mode. It's like, uh, you know, they can never be Christians in the outside world. It'd be too hard. But in a monastery, it's really easy to be a Christian because uh, the whole way that your life is set up is to be a Christian. And it's like kind of similar to an answer that Arce gives about Cuba is like, how can you be a Christian in a socialist society? It's like, well, it's kind of easy because the entire society is set up so that you like, if you, if you just show up for work, you're basically like helping society, you know, it, it makes it so easy. You don't have to like, you know, sit in, in hours and hours of meetings with your like church vestry or um, presbytery or whatever to figure out like, what's a good thing you can do for your community. Because it's just like, just doing things in general it would be good. Right. Cause if society is set up so that it's it's for the for the common good for a for a good for the the social sphere as it were, um, you can't you can't help but be a good Christian. You're always doing good works, and I think that's really interesting. Um, you know, uh, being a Christian in a social society means that like it's just really easy. You don't have to you don't have to stress about like coming up with a fundraiser or su- or staffing a soup kitchen or whatever because it's just like kind of baked into the yeah uh that reminds me in ernesto cardinal's book about going to cuba he tells this pretty funny story about like talking with all these um young marxists when he's there and he's like telling them about solentaname and it strikes him as he's talking about it that he's like i'm basically explaining to them oh yeah in solentaname we have this like community and it's really special and we care about each other and so on and like they don't really seem that impressed and he's like oh yeah because i guess that's what cuba is trying to do as a country <laughs> it's like not that exceptional <laughs> it's like really hard to do in nicaragua but not as hard in cuba <laughs> um at least from cardinal's perspective uh so i think there's something to that right this kind of um monastic uh reading of of um the socialist project Uh, I like the way that Arce puts it uh, elsewhere here, too. He says, I feel like this is a good quote to read because of the name of our podcast. Uh, I'm a Christian because through the drastic revolutionary changes in my native land, I've come to know that God is revealed in Christ as the one who discloses might with the deeds of God's right arm, putting the arrogant of heart and mind to rout, bringing down imperial powers from their thrones, satisfying the hungry with good things and sending the rich away empty. Uh, Quoting the Magnificat there. And he goes on to say uh, kind of what you were just talking about, Matt. I'm a Christian because through the Cuban revolutionary and socialist experience, I've been able to remove from my life as a Christian the intrinsic, explicit, and insurmountable contradiction represented by the attempt to be a Christian in the midst of a capitalist society. And he goes on to say, too, that it's great that he's living in a society that wants to eliminate you know, racial discrimination and uh sexism and so on um, and he, he concludes saying uh all all the people in cuba can now participate not only in the production of goods but also in their more equitable distribution to all 
So I guess this is the the third contingency, right? The first one is he's born a Christian. That's why he's a Christian. The second is that he uh, uh, encountered Christ in the poor, being from a poor country, and also he like did a bunch of ministry in the poor that we with the poor that we didn't really talk about, but having that encounter with the poor. And the last contingency is the revolution, which happened around him and kind of gives him another um, angle on what it means to to see Christ or to see God as a, a liberating actor in history. Um, so that's why Arce is a Christian. I think it's a, a really interesting thing that also has forced me to contemplate, like, what are the contingencies that make me a Christian? And uh, next time someone asks me, I'm just going to say, because my parents took me to Mass. That's why. <laughs> it's a good answer. There are a bunch of other things that we could talk about. Um, we got stuck on this great essay. We read the other one, uh, Church and Revolution, which is really fun. It's a great essay if you want to learn a lot about colonial history in Cuba, which is dry but cool content. Um, you can learn about the Catholic and Protestant responses to all kinds of different moments in Cuban society. But I think the most interesting thing is, again, kind of what Arce concludes about what it's like to theologize in a revolutionary situation. I'll mention that briefly, and then we can talk about this great cherry on top, this confession that Matt promised. Um, the coolest thing is that he talks about um, faith, hope, and love being, you know, the, the important virtues of faith, but he interprets them in an interesting way. So he says, uh, faith is that of theology, which for him means kind of committing to a church that is always on the side of the poor. Hope is that of pedagogy, he says, which is like really learning about what it means to build a social society in a rational way. And the last is love, which he says is politics, which is really learning how to actually participate in society together. And I love this little gloss uh, that I thought was at least worth reading before we close it out. Uh, the greatest and most important, the most fundamental and decisive level is the political, the one related to love that makes us proletarian makes us human beings for creative work, joins us together, makes us brothers and sisters. So uh, just like Paul, you know, Jesus gave us faith, hope, and love, um, but the greatest of them is love. And uh, love, RSA, is extremely funny, revolutionary gloss on those concepts. So you can go back and read all the history yourself, but I thought uh, we should at least pull that part out. No, it's great. It's great for sure. Um, okay, well, uh, there's the third section of the book that we're not going to really get to talk very much about, but just a little bit is called the mission of the church in a socialist society. And it's cool because uh, liberation theology is always interested in kind of the critique and like, how do you resist capitalism? But this is like, well, what do you do when capitalism has been, I mean, not defeated, but you know, <laughs> excised from your country and there's been a great revolution. And he offers like a handful of, ideas about what it is that churches are supposed to do. But this is the, I think, concluding comment he makes. I think it's actually a pretty good one. He, I mean, it's good even if you're not uh, you're not in a church that is in a revolutionary <laughs> situation. <laughs> but uh, Arce says, God will not do for us what is incumbent on us to do. And God cannot play that missionary role in the society if we do not play ours first. This does not mean that God cannot raise and is not raising sons of Abraham, even from stones, but it does mean that if he were raised on high, he would attract everyone. These are biblical references in case you're not, uh, you're not jumping <laughs> at them. You're not, you're not sure what I'm talking about. Uh, he goes on to say, today God commands us as in the past God commanded the Jews who were weeping over the death of a man as if everyone could die completely to remove the stone from the tomb. Then and only then will Lazarus, who was asleep, not dead, but asleep, for this is like one of the i think big themes in our work that uh his theology is not one of like knowing 
something interesting about God. It's about praxis. It's about doing something. Uh, God's not going to do what you could do yourself. <laughs> so get out there and do it, I guess, is the moral of the story. Uh, roll away the stone from the tomb, and then uh, and then the next, the next bit comes. I like this a lot because, um, you know... Christians, they love looking for these big divine signs of where where God has intervened in the world or something. Uh, but just in like that that one um, that that one Ernesto Cardinal uh, poem that we like to quote that I can't I don't have on hand, <laughs> <laughs> so I can't quote it exactly. But uh, basically, in, in the poem, uh, Ernesto Cardinal is looking for for God's providence and uh, intervention into the Nicaraguan Revolution, and then um, Ernesto Cardinal kind of just like realizes that uh god did it all it was you know it's it's all it's all god all the way down it's it's similar though right that uh god's not going to do what you can do uh for yourself and uh i don't know it's a good word it's a good word that uh it focuses on praxis in society and not just like waiting around uh well why don't we um move from that very good word at the end we're getting close to the end of the hour here um and uh, address that cherry on top matt so matt did look up and find the confession of faith of the reformed presbyterian church in cuba which sergio rsa had a hand in drafting um and uh i think first of all that's some great um podcast homework that matt did i think we should all give him an a plus and um really really appreciate that yeah thank you (laughs) uh some real journalism on the show but uh matt also i didn't get a chance to read it so you're gonna have to pull out all the great bits here uh what's going on here what's it like to be uh to confess the faith of the reformed presbyterian church in cuba in the the late 70s it is very interesting it's okay so first of all um, as a person who's gone to a Presbyterian church now just a few times, I'm trying to find reasons to be excited about Presbyterianism. And this is the one reason <laughs> I've found so far. <laughs> I'm really psyched about it. <laughs> no, I'm sure there's other things too, but um, this is this is an exciting one. Um, so some of it is like more or less, you know, boilerplate kinds of things that you'd find in any confession of faith in any church. But some things are a little bit, a little bit of different vibe to them. Um, so like I mentioned earlier, there's this whole there's a there's an emphasis on work and the importance of work. Um, and that's cool. <laughs> uh, it has a it has a link to sort of like the communitarian nature of Christianity and also society. Um, it also lays out it like, you know, from this confession of faith explicitly says that humans are communitarian beings and that they are supposed to be kind of in community with one another. In a uh, in specifically in like socio political ways, right? The nod towards socialism, um, but then there's like some more interesting things at the end that I thought were really fascinating. Um, so I'm just going to read this kind of piece of it here, and we can talk about maybe what it means and and how it kind of uh, is is in line in a lot of ways with Arce's larger theology that we've been talking about here. So this confession of faith was uh, proclaimed by the the Reformed Presbyterian Church of Cuba in 1977. Um, and in case you want to go read it yourself, you can go find it in a book on archive.org called Reformed Witness Today, a collection of confessions and statements of faith issued by Reformed churches. And uh, it's got them all in there. So if you ever want to read uh, the confessions of faith from different churches, different Reformed churches, you can who go wouldn't? to that book and figure it all out. Um, who wouldn't want that? It's exactly the question. Um, Okay, so the very end of the Confession of Faith says this. A few few interesting notes. 
The church teaches that modern technology, when it's at the service of the interests of exploiting classes, has produced a series of false idols, such as utilitarian logic, the confiscation of human beings, and technocratic nihilism. All Christian believers should fight committedly together with those who strive to eradicate such idols for the disappearance of their creators. Um, this piece is very cool. Uh, a great, I mean, it's a great Marxist philosophy of technology right here and a great theology of technology right here. It's um, definitely not something that you'd normally find in uh, in a confession of faith. Uh, going hard on the uh, exploiting classes piece is definitely kind of out of the ordinary. But here's where things get really interesting. The church, the church, meaning the Reformed Presbyterian Church in Cuba, teaches that when our people choose Marxist-Leninist ways of development through a social-political revolution, a more human relationship with nature has been brought about as well, as a primary concern for the health of the people. The Marxist-Leninist revolution has proved to be the only way which makes technological and ecological development possible and which successfully puts an end to underdevelopment. This phenomenon of underdevelopment has produced infrahuman beings, victims of exploitation and oppression with the world capitalistic and imperialistic system. This church joyfully lives in the midst of the socialist revolution, since the revolution has concrete and historically inaugurated a series of values and human relations that make it possible for the whole technical scientific development to be at the service of the full dignity of human beings. Um, a very interesting end to a confession of faith, <laughs> a different one, right? Um, you know, it's uh, people, uh, Christians, have, you know, they're interested in Jesus. They're interested in uh, being stewards of creation. They're interested in uh, being communal beings and being citizens of a country. Um, that's all normal stuff, no big deal. But then, the, but then you get the great turn at the end of uh, Marxism. Leninism is specifically the <laughs> only way which which uh, which makes this all work. And uh, Christians should be really should be really uh, jazzed about that. And uh, this this church in particular is just having the, the best time during this uh, great revolution. I, I think it's so interesting because um, I, I mean, you know, Arce is always emphasizing the importance of doing right of praxis. Um, rejecting you know the the docetist uh and and like gnostic i guess um like heresies and saying like no christianity has to be material it has to be doing something and the way that the, the way of doing things that makes the most sense is marxism leninism and that's very <laughs> funny that's like in an official church document uh, you'll love to see it. <laughs> you'll love to see it for sure uh what an incredibly wild thing for the presbyterians to say so i guess you have to print this out and then take it to the pastor at your new presbyterian church and be like hi can i do this one can i confess this one though <laughs> I've got to confront her about it and see what she says. You know, I, it's like, do you like, I think Presbyterianism is great. And specifically this, <laughs> this particular church confession is the one I'm all about. Though. Yeah. I mean, you can't imagine the Scottish one ending with like, and also we really like King Charles. Uh, it's just like not a good note to go out on. No, totally. I think that, I think that's right though. It, you can definitely see like the liberal objections to this kind of thing that like uh, more liberal theologians would be like, well, you shouldn't say anything about a particular political system in general, that would be bad form. It's bad theology, um, whatever. But I think that in the context of socialism, I think, I think it makes a lot of sense, right? Like you want to get things done. You want to have a society that looks better, that takes care of the poor, that takes care of all kinds of people, then this is how you have to do it. And I appreciate the, uh, the, the, uh, the Protestant impulse to just like put your cards <laughs> on the table, say what you mean and not like beat around the bush. That's about right. It, it is a very, uh, here I stand kind of moment. Um, 
Well, all right, we're getting to the end here. I think uh, what I really love about Sergio Orsa in particular, and this reflects on what you were just talking about with this confession, is that it really he really gives the lie to the notion that there just like cannot be an authentic kind of Christianity in uh, a revolutionary situation. And I think, too, like we talked on this podcast in the past about Fidel and religion and kind of Fidel Castro's views of religion being more nuanced or moderated than people might guess. But it's one thing to be like, here's a Marxist leader of a state saying something to a Catholic priest. You know, like you can maybe create a lot of cynical explanations of that. I don't think that you should, but you could. Um, I think it's different, though, when you hear somebody like Sergio Arce, who had been a pastor, he had been the rector of this theological seminary, he was the secretary of the Presbyterian Church, like a guy who is a true believer in his faith tradition, uh, to hear that person be like, I'm down with this project, and I think it's giving me these different opportunities and challenges and so on, um, it gives a lie to that sort of uh, anti-communist bias that people might have that suggests you can't really be a Christian and and affirm, you know, a different model of development or a different model of social life together. Uh, we just talked a while ago about the uh, the USCURF report, the US, uh, whatever it is, whatever that uh, acronym means, something about religious freedom, uh, a report that suggested that basically, like, uh, there aren't any Christians in Cuba who are like down with the the project. And the ones that are down with the revolutionary project are like plants or they're kind of party functionaries who are made up or they're lying or they're spies or whatever. And a person like Sergio Arce just uh, blows up that kind of interpretation, I think. Uh, what do you think, Matt? What's, uh, what's great about Sergio Arce today? Yeah, I think what I appreciate about it is... I think it's just the bluntness, right? That like, if you, if you're a Christian, right, you, you probably have some kind of like idea about what society should look like. And Sergio Arce is just, just lays it out and says, and this is what you should do then. (laughs) (laughs) Right. If you're a Christian, because you think that you should change the world and that you should, you know, like uh, act with the poor for the, toward their liberation, then here you go. This is how you do it. And uh, there's no splitting hairs. I like it. I like the bluntness of it. It's really appealing to uh, <laughs> to my Protestantism. Uh, it's it's giving me exactly what I want. Just tell me what to do, and I'm going to do it. Thanks for listening to The Magnificast. If you like what you heard on this imposed necessary hour that you have stumbled upon listening, uh, you can support us on Patreon at patreon.com slash The Magnificast. Um, you can find us on a bunch of social media. We made a Blue Sky account recently. Um, I don't know, same same social media boss, uh, or new social media boss, same as the old one. But uh, we're out there. We are tweeting and skeeting and posting and whatever. Um, our music is by Amaria Armstrong. Our outro is by The Illogical Spoon, and we'll see you next week. Get up for church in the morning, church in the morning, souls alive. Heaven come to earth and there won't be no church. We'll meet down by the riverside. There we'll swim with all creation. Never get tired, never bored. Don't worry, someday there'll be no dam between us and our Lord. Jackson, keep your hoods up. Keep your hoods up and you stay up late in Jackson. You keep your hoods up, well you keep your hoods up.
stay up late Oh, don't mind a cold night But we might mind if you leave too soon So come on now, it's still early At least I would have saw 